Hello and welcome to our continuing 2017 educational webinar series. I am Dr. Jill Brooks, Senior Director of Education for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, a hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Stanley Spitek, President of Fire and Life Safety, joining us for a discussion on emergency preparedness requirements. Stan is a fire service safety professional with over 35 years of emergency service, loss control, and asset protection experience. He's a former deputy fire chief, fire marshal of a metropolitan Chicago area fire protection district. His responsibilities included emergency management and the delivery of fire protection, emergency medical service, technical rescue and hazardous materials response, and disaster planning. Additionally, Stan was responsible for fire prevention bureau management and the delivery of code enforcement, fire investigation, building plan review, and public education programs within the jurisdiction. He honorably retired from the fire service in June of 2003. As a safety consultant and founding partner of Fire and Life Safety, he has developed a firm that provides its clients with a variety of proactive safety solutions that are designed to identify and eliminate risks, subsequently decreasing an organization's operating costs and increasing levels of emergency preparedness. Fire and Life Safety services clients in a variety of occupancy types including business, industrial, educational, board and care, skilled health care, public assembly, and senior housing. Additionally, Stan is a founding member of the Emergency Management Alliance, a group of specialized consulting firms providing disaster preparedness, emergency management, and security assessment and training services to the insurance industry and individual facilities in a national marketplace. He is also the Life Safety Disaster Preparedness Consultant for the Arizona Healthcare Association and the California Association of Healthcare Facilities. Go ahead, Stan. Well, Dr. Brooks, thank you, and I appreciate you pronouncing my name the right way. It's not a very easy feat to do, but uh, that introduction, it almost sounded like I wrote it myself. Anyhow, good morning and good afternoon to everybody that's on our call today, and uh, welcome to our webinar. Little did we know when we were planning this earlier in the year after we had done a, a very successful life safety compliance workshop uh, on this same platform, did we know that emergency preparedness was going to be such a hot topic. Certainly when it comes to the new compliance elements that uh, all of those different 17 provider types out there in the world of CMS have got to deal with, um, it was uh, something that was concerning and of concern to everyone. But you know, in light of the tragedies that we're seeing occurring nationally and internationally, the devastation from naturally occurring events to the man-made uh, attempts that are going to be occurring to interrupt our society. You know, we've got to be ready for anything and everything. So I'd like to think that I've prepared a program today that's going to be uh, providing everyone a little bit of everything. We're certainly going to focus on compliance, but one of the things that I always like to submit to an organization, whether I'm presenting in person or on a webinar like this, is that we've got to remember that it's not compliance for compliance sake. There's consequences. If we're not prepared, if we haven't followed the rules, if we're not in alignment with the, uh, with the regulations and the best practices that are out there, if we're not preparing, mitigating, responding, and recovering, and maintaining continuity of operations during crisis or disaster, you know, the consequences are going to be less 
than favorable. Having the fire service background that I have and coming um, from a perspective that I can really take real world events and then kind of equate them into what our reality is, we've got to remember that anything, anytime, anywhere, you know, one of the things that resonates with me uh, being out there doing training on emergency preparedness, dealing with specific perils like active shooting events, you know, they don't only happen in airports or on subways, they don't only happen at schools, they happen in healthcare facilities. One of the things that I want to say right out of the box is that for those of you that are on the call that aren't necessarily associated with long-term care, I just want you to understand that my perspective is kind of in alignment with long-term care. I've certainly done some work with hospitals and other healthcare providers, but my alliance with the different associations that I work with um, really puts me in focus with long-term care. And when this tragic event happened back in May of this year where the uh, deranged gunman went into the facility and executed two employees, hid uh, in the bushes while responders uh, got on the scene and executed the responding police chief. You know, it really puts into focus that if it can happen in a small town in a 25-bed facility, bad things can happen anywhere. You know, I know that this um, this format has put on some great educational opportunities. Everything from how to de-escalate violence in the workplace, how to deal with an active shooter. And as we scroll through the events that have occurred in recent times, everything from the tragedy of San Bruno, the shootings in Orlando, everything from the natural disasters that are going to continue to impact our country, whether it's the wildland fires of the West and the Northwest occurring right now, whether it's the tropical storms and uh, hurricanes that are battering uh, our, our nation in the southeast and so forth. We've got to be ready for anything. And it all comes down to what are those threats and perils? Are you aware of um, what potentially can happen to you? You know, I'm broadcasting uh, to you today from sunny Mesa, Arizona. Would you be surprised to know that when we've done our threat assessments at hospitals and nursing homes at hospice facilities and healthcare providers here in the Valley of the Sun, one of our highest threats is the potential for flood. And based on the flooding that we've seen in places like Houston and other areas, you know, water is gonna find its path of least resistance and we've gotta be ready for everything. And what about those man-made, whether they're unintentional, intentional, or accidental? Look at how healthcare was impacted in the small town of West Texas back in April of 2013. When that fertilizer plant caught on fire, when the detonation occurred, impacting everything from the surrounding homes and apartments to a nursing home that was in the path of that concussion wave, um, causing a complete evacuation of the facility. Your community has to be ready for everything, but we've got to make sure that we're not looking only at the obvious threats. When I get the opportunity to work with healthcare providers, again, a lot of long-term care facilities around the country, whether it's a complete retirement community, continuing care, retiring campus, or standalone nursing homes, I review emergency preparedness plans, I look at your disaster protocols, I look at your fire and life safety plans, and it's clear that until new regulation came into play, and that regulation is not yet being enforced, but we're gonna talk about that a little bit later, the planning protocols always seem to focus on the obvious threats. 
if you're in the Midwest and I was visiting your facility to do an emergency preparedness assessment, it was all about severe weather and tornado. If you're down in a coastal region, I've done a lot of work in North Carolina, South Carolina, down in Florida, everything's all about hurricane. Up in the Northeast, it's winter storms out here in the desert. We obviously focus on excessive heat. If it's a seismically active area, your plan is all about earthquake. I know you'll feel bad for me. I've even had to go to Hawaii and do some work in Maui and Honolulu and a couple of the other islands. And those plans had a tendency about being all about the geocentric events that can happen to them like tsunami. We've got to move beyond the obvious threats. And you've got to look what's beyond your border what's beyond your parking lot, what's beyond the fence at your facility. And I say that tongue-in-cheek, but the reality is many of us, especially in long-term care and other sectors of healthcare beyond the acute hospital setting, just have a tendency of focusing what's on the inside. You've got to think about the gas stations, the pipelines, the things that are out there in the community, like a railroad crossing. And you've got to ask yourself, what if our community or what if our healthcare facility is down the street? How are we going to be prepared for anything when the active shooting starts at a school or at a shopping mall? What are we going to do when that gas tanker is at the local gas station offloading its 8,000 gallon supply of gasoline? And a spark occurs, and all of a sudden you've got you know rivers of gasoline burning and streaming down the street. Now, some of you on the call might say, okay, this guy gets carried away with these scenarios, but you know what? I was a firefighter back in the Chicago area back in the 1990s when that exact scenario played out in Evergreen Park, Illinois. All of a sudden, at the local Sitco station, a fire erupted, and as the engine companies and the ladder crews started to get on the scene, they were dealing with rivers of gasoline flowing down the gutter. And there was a school down the street a nursing home down the way, a hospital a few blocks away. What happens when these things happen in your community? How prepared are you really? You know, are you just focused on emergency preparedness and maybe on this call today because you understand and know that there's new regulations that you've got to comply with? Are you that person that says, you know what, we've got to do a better job and we've got to be better prepared? You know what, regardless of the motivation, as to why you're on this call today. Number one, we're glad that you're here. And number two, we want you to get into that mindset of we can never be too prepared. Our program, and program is a key word that we're gonna talk about when I get a little bit deeper into the regulations, but our emergency preparedness or our emergency management program has to be fully dimensional. It can't just be a written plan. You've got to institute a culture, and you're going to hear me reference that term a few times in the program today. You've got to establish and maintain a culture of preparedness within your organization so that you are ready for anything. And you've got to understand that things are going to happen beyond your control. You can't control the transportation system or when an aircraft goes down in the community. You can't control if there's going to be a cyber attack that's going to affect your payroll and your benefits because you outsource those programs to a third-party provider. Many of you might be really surprised to know this. In the different healthcare coalitions that I work with in Arizona and California, we hear about the stories. And would you be surprised to know that a major metropolitan area hospital
in the Phoenix area was intimately impacted by Superstorm Sandy. When that tidal surge came ashore in New Jersey, swamping out a data center, and all of a sudden that major metropolitan hospital here in Phoenix, all of its electronic health records, all of its computers went dark and they had a crisis that they had to deal with. Things are going to happen that are beyond your control. And probably as, as important, if not more important, I need it to get out of your thinking. You've got to stop thinking that it can't happen here. That shootings are just happen, happening in places like Dallas when the police force is under attack. Or in San Bernardino when uh, the madmen, the terrorists, stormed into that community center and started to execute people. The flooding, the fires, the disasters, the derailments, the shootings, they can happen anywhere, just like they happened in that small town in Ohio. And when it comes to senior services in particular, and I know everyone on the call today isn't related to senior services or long-term care, and this slide is applicable to any level of healthcare, any kind of occupancy for that uh, matter. We've got some lessons that we need to keep in mind and let's go through those lessons. Number one, and I want you to really look at this statement and I'm going to read it slowly. Disaster planning and exercises are the key to survival, not the written plan. Now we're going to certainly talk about compliance and things like, <clears throat> excuse me, the written plan and how important it is to have policies and procedures and written documents that will substantiate all of your efforts, that will document and articulate all the things that you need to integrate into your emergency management program. But when it gets right down to it, you know, I think about my time on the fire department when we had to practice and sit in the classroom and open up the training manuals. But what was more resourceful? What was more beneficial? It was the training. It was the drills. It was the exercises. It was the culture of being prepared for when that alarm went off and we were called into action. And trust me, even in the fire service, an emergency response agency or somebody affiliated with EMS or law enforcement, you don't get to do what you're trained to do all the time. And certainly, CMS accrediting agencies and others in accordance with best practices are putting emergency preparedness on everyone's radar screens. But how often are these things going to really happen? Not very often. You know, even according to the NFPA, the National Fire Protection Association, firefighters statistically only do their job three to six percent of the time. Think about that one. How many administrators, executive directors, CEOs, um, supervisors on the call right now would accept three to six percent uh, productivity from any employee. But the point that I'm trying to make is that we've got to have the written protocols in place, but it's got to be the program and it's got to be the programmatic elements of drills and exercises and doing the things that will really give some depth and dimension to your program. You've got to understand the logistics, especially when it comes to communications. And communications is going to be a critical element of compliance. 
when we start going through the laundry list of all the things that you're going to need to comply with as one of the 17 provider types. But you've got to acknowledge, like we've seen in recent disasters and others have experienced, particularly when it comes to cell phones and landlines, those service elements will likely go down or be overwhelmed. But when it comes to texting and other communication capabilities, those types of um, uh, mediums might be resilient. Here's an example. I live in the Phoenix area now, but I still maintain my Chicago um, cell phone. So if there was some kind of event that happens here, the president's in town, there's been some kind of attack at a stadium, and everybody's on their phones at the same time, it's more likely that all of the local area codes and the phones with the local area codes are not going to be making a call, but those of us with sufficiently out-of-state area codes might be able to make that call. So you've got to know what your capabilities are. I'm not a telecommunication expert, but these are the things that you've got to consider, that when the cell phones are overwhelmed, out-of-state area codes seem to keep, uh, seem to keep uh, operationally. When it comes to your supplies, now we're going to talk about the supplies that you need to maintain at your facilities in accordance with the new rule, as well as best practices, but just using the Joint Commission standard of 96 hours of supplies. You're going to find out that in a true crisis or disaster, no matter how much supply, resource, and asset you have on hand, if you're under duress, it's just not going to be enough. You know, when I'm doing a live workshop, I'll give the example to the audience of my experience as a fireman. Um, those air tanks that firefighters wear on their backs, they're rated for 60 minutes. But even a well-conditioned firefighter under duress, crawling into a building, evacuating residents in a hazardous materials environment, when they're breathing that air that's supposed to last for 60 minutes, how long do you think they really get out of it? sometimes 40 minutes, sometimes 15 minutes, sometimes 22 minutes. Um, the point I'm trying to make here is that you need supplies, but consider when you think you've got enough, it's probably never going to be enough. And black, <clears throat> excuse me, back to technology, electronic health records. We know that they're becoming the standard in the healthcare industry, but what happens when all of a sudden, like that major metropolitan hospital here, experienced during Superstorm and Hurricane Sandy, their screens go black. You've got to make sure that you've got contingencies, paper backup, and doing things old school so that when the computer screens do go dark, you've got a contingency. And for those care staff folks that are on the call right now, particularly our DONs and others that are involved with charting and electronic health records, I remember being in a state at a state association presenting this concept that you have to have paper backup. Well, one salty old DON raised her hand and she says, you know what, that's a great concept, but I need you to consider this as well. We've got a couple of generation <clears throat> of nurses that don't know how to chart the old-fashioned way. So if you're going to have backup, you're going to have to make sure that you've got people trained on how to use that paper backup. Here's a concept that might be tough to believe, but anybody that's ever been in a crisis or a disaster, especially in a small rural community, and even in a met metropolitan area like Washington, D.C., on 9-11, when something bad happens, people are going to show up at your healthcare facility. 
They're just going to show up. They make the assumption that you're going to provide some resource. I remember we had a facility that I work with here in Arizona that during a rogue winter storm that went down the I-40 corridor up near Flagstaff a few years ago. Flagstaff is surrounded by tribal communities and tribal nations. And it was a very affluent, high-end, um, continuing care type retirement community. It was independent living. It was a skilled nursing facility. And they provided assisted living and memory care as well. And at some point during the midst of this winter storm, this blizzard, all of a sudden, there was a whole line of pickup trucks that showed up at this facility. The doors open, elderly residents discharged from vehicles, and members of the community said, can you take care of my grandmother, my mother, my father? Understand that in a true crisis or disaster, you need to be prepared that the desperate public will show up. You've got to understand, like some of those folks down in Houston, or earlier during Hurricane Katrina, or other major events. It could be hours, if not days, before help shows up. And that's why it's so critically important that you know that you're gonna to need to be self-sufficient as a healthcare facility. And when it comes to the emotional and psychological impact, or just the humanistic elements of a crisis, a disaster, any kind of profound adverse uh, event, you and your staff will be impact impacted and you're going to be profoundly impacted by these kinds of events. How do we prepare for disaster? Real quickly I want to go through the concept that's become front and center on the new compliance issues that are out there and published and soon to be enforced by CMS. You need to do a hazard vulnerability assessment and if you haven't done one at your facility even if you're a small hospice, a clinic, or an ambulatory care facility, you've got to understand that you've got to identify the threats, the perils, as well as the capabilities and capacities um, that can impact your facility. You know, it's basically all about what is the likelihood of occurrence or probability, what is going to be the impact on our people, our property, and our business practices, and then finally, how do we factor in our levels of preparedness and response internally and externally? For the risk managers on the call right now, here's the formula. A hazard vulnerability assessment is created by taking the probability plus impact uh, elements of a crisis or disaster, adding those together, and that gives you your level of unmitigated risk. When you factor in your levels of mitigation and preparedness, your sprinkler system in the building, the fire drills that you do, the evacuation exercises that you participate in. When you figure in all of your mitigation and levels of preparedness, you're then able to come with your, up with your, un, um, with your mitigated levels of risk. Now, I know a lot of you are looking for resource. There are tools that are out there. There's some common hazard vulnerability assessment tools. This one produced by a company that's well known, and this document is used by healthcare providers around the country. Some might say, well, it's not the best. It is the best. There's opportunity for improvement. This Kaiser Permanente Hazard Vulnerability Assessment has pretty much come to stand, become the standard in a lot of healthcare facilities. And they've even revised it recently in 2017. 
And this is a document that you can get um, accessible by doing a Google search, by going to the California Association of Health Facilities or the Arizona Healthcare Association websites, by going to the California Hospital Association website. But embrace these tools because they are automated and they will help you identify what your levels of risks are. A key element or a key phrase of everything that we're talking about today is the concept of all hazards planning. If you're buying into what I'm saying, anything, anytime, anywhere, from a hospital shooting to a nursing home that's impacted by a tornado, like our friends in Joplin were back in 2011, to the rising flood waters, you need to have a plan for everything. I think about my time back on the fire department. I got on when I was a kid. Still in high school, the community had a cadet program. I was riding on the back end of fire trucks in 1977, before that kind of practice was outlawed for safety reasons. And being a firefighter meant put the wet stuff on the red stuff. We put out fires. But think about your firefighters in your community today. Or think about all the different threats and perils that can happen in your community or in your facility. You've got to be ready for every type of emergency. And that means that you've got to have an all-hazards emergency management plan. And that's what CMS and other accrediting agencies are saying you need to have. You've got to make sure that you've got a plan that addresses your residents or your patients' unique clinical and support needs. When you do your hazard vulnerability assessment, You'll determine what your hazards and your perils are, fire, power failure, shooter, workplace violence. When you identify those threats and perils, your planning efforts and your program needs to focus on those high-risk threats. You've got to factor in local emergency planning considerations. Are you in a rural community served by a volunteer fire department? And how long is it going to take for those volunteers to leave work or leave their house to get to the station to jump on a rig and get to your facility? Do you have a robust emergency management agency in your area where you're working with them or is there a lot of disconnection? You've got to make sure that you factor in those considerations. And then all hazards emergency management means that you've got to have a system for command and control. You've got to identify communications, both primary alternate communications. You've got to have a good accounting of the stuff, the resources, assets, and supplies that you're going to need for an emergency. And you've got to focus on safety and security. You'll never know how vulnerable you are as a site when you're the only one in the community with the lights still operating because your emergency generator is chugging away. And all of a sudden, you're four days, six days, ten days into a power failure. At some point, social norms are going to start to erode and people are going to try to get to your stuff. So you've got to think about safety, security, and staff responsibilities. We've got to make sure that we align our staff to the elements of an emergency so that we're handling things as, efficient, as efficiently as possible. you got to think about it. How do our firefighters, how do our first responders, how do those people that you have as friends and neighbors, family members, husband and wife that deal with these kinds of emergencies, whether they're a firefighter, an EMS worker, somebody that's involved with the military, how do we manage these large-scale events? Well, I can tell you with a high level of confidence, we manage them efficiently.
And a lot of our practices were born out of tragedy. Certainly the tragedy of 9-11 and the lessons that we learned that we've got to be better synergized, that fire and police need to be working together in a unified command mode, that the healthcare delivery system, whether it's long-term care, hospice care, a hospital, a clinic, that we're all singing from the same sheet music. A couple of Homeland Security presidential directives that were born out of 9-11 uh, really focus on these efforts. The National Response Framework and the National Incident Management System really helped synergize our efforts. There was a time that even in the Chicago area where I worked, the suburbs did it different than the city did it. Some suburban areas were using different radio frequencies. We weren't working together. The National Incident Management Systems and the concepts of incident command help us really all align our efforts. I'm going to read this one verbatim. One of the most important best practices that's been incorporated into the National Incident Management System is the Incident Command System, a standard on-scene, all-hazards incident management system already in use by firefighters, hazmat teams, rescuers, and emergency medical teams, including the hospital and healthcare delivery system. And that's exactly what it is. It is protocols. It is singing from the same sheet music. It's all about everything that happens in a standardized way from when the call is first received to the on-scene coordination that's going to occur to the bigger scale coordination happens when a true disaster is declared. It's everybody talking the same way each and every time. What's exciting for me working with long-term care uh, a whole lot of my time is that there's even a derivative of incident command that was specifically designed for the nursing homes, known as the Nursing Home Incident Command System. Certainly, those of you on the call that deal with hospitals are familiar with the Hospital Incident Command System. And we have even developed a system for assisted living called the Assisted Living Incident Command System. So those resources are out there. And you need to understand what the benefits of ICS, or Incident Command, or in this case, the Nursing Home Incident Command System is. Going into that system of command and control empowers people. Knowing who's in charge, what the rules of the game are, promoting interoperability, and I'll talk about that a little bit uh, later in a couple of other slides. Uh, having an efficiency when it's coming to delegation tasks and authority. Everything under the auspices of incident command helps promote that all hazards approach. Back to my time on the fire department. We used to put the wet stuff on the red stuff. Now we respond to hazardous materials incident, technical rescues, flooding, violence, weapons of mass destruction. How does your local fire department deal with all the emergencies that come their way? Well, it's through the incident command system. And all it really is is management by objectives. Coming up with flexible, measurable, and attainable objectives to manage the emergency scene, whether it's a missing resident in your facility, a wildfire that's fast approaching, or any kind of emergency, coming up with those objectives and identifying uh, or aligning them with timeframes known as operational periods, that's how incident command works. If I had eight hours, I can give you a real thorough, thorough overview of the incidents command system, but I'm just giving you some broad strokes of what it's all about. It's all about 
incident action planning, setting up those operational periods, determining priorities, coming up with objectives, setting strategies, identifying the, the stuff that you need, the resources, issuing those assignments, evaluating your efforts and documenting your results. That's what Incident Command is all about. And we just don't have time to get into the weeds today and talk about ICS, maybe something to talk about in the future, but having an organizational chart that looks like this, that's that standard chart that works in every kind of discipline. And you've got to understand, especially if you're small, that smaller facility, you might say, well, we don't even have that many people in our nursing home or our four-bed hospice facility. But the beauty of incident command and incident management by incident command is it's a modular approach that can expand and contract based on the scope of the event. In a full evacuation, you're going to have a, uh, an organizational chart of incident command that is um, fully operationalized like you're seeing in the main image on the screen. Off to the right, let's say you've just got a missing resident. It's going to be a much smaller operation and less people are going to be needed. For those of you that are on the call uh, in long-term care, and certainly the tragedies of Florida really focus on the fact that we need to have better planning. We've got to be ready for evacuation or sheltering in place. If you're with the nursing homes and you need to get uh, and you want access to the, the, the nursing home incident command system, pretty much all roads lead to California. And it's not just because of my alignment with CAF. But considering that um, even if you go to the American Healthcare Association's website and you want to be connected with the incident command system for nursing home, it's going to take you to the CAF disaster preparedness website. Everything from all the tools that you're going to need are going to be out there. So you've got to keep that in mind. So what's one of the major reasons that we're here? I hope I've made the case to you that it's not compliance for compliance sake. There's consequences if you don't have your sprinkler system operational in your building. If you haven't trained your staff to fully evacuate or know how to shelter in place. The report that came out from the Officer of Inspector General back in 2012 as a follow-up report to an earlier, earlier report that was born out of Hurricane Katrina basically said this, and I'm not being too politically correct here, and I'm just going to say it, but specifically, and we can just use this as a model. When it came to emergency preparedness, long-term care and other provider types weren't prepared as good as they should have been. Now, some can take issue with the focus of the, of the survey that was done, the study that was done by the OIG. I mean, it only looked at 24 facilities in seven states, and it only looked at disasters in that narrow time frame of 2007 to 2010. But what were some of the common findings? That there were staffing shortages during these emergencies. That technical elements of care were, over, um, were, were not focused on as much as they should be. That residents were lost and not properly tracked during evacuation. That there was insufficient sheltering in place capabilities in any kind of healthcare facility. And just like in any emergencies, communications was a major vulnerability and a great opportunity for improvement. And in red, you see that most healthcare providers, particularly long-term care health care providers, didn't use the incident command system. But here's something that's really interesting. Yet, with all this criticism, constructive and otherwise, 92% of all the nursing homes in the country met 
the federal requirements when it came to the emergency plan. Because pretty much that's all the surveyors looked at. CMS came out with some guidance that ended up being a good framework and a foundation for what ultimately became the new rule. Some of you on the call might be from uh, familiar with this, but it really laid out all the elements of a good emergency preparedness and an emergency management program. But here's what the reality is, and maybe this is the meat and potato. It's for some of you on the call right now, change is on the way. We know that the proposed rule was first published, this is the CMS rule, that affects 17 different provider types, published on December 27, 2013, gave it some time for some public commentary, and it basically said Again, I'm summarizing in a very non-politically non, uh, non correct way. The existing guidance that's out there on emergency preparedness was not comprehensive enough for the complexities of an actual emergency. And what you need to know, if you don't already know it, the new rule is going to impose extensive conditions of participation on long-term care providers, hospitals, hospice, and all the other 17 provider types that are out there. And here's a key concept uh, and something that you really need to know. And we've kind of already talked about hazard vulnerability assessment, but you've got to make sure that your emergency management program, and that's the key, it has to be a program, not just a written plan. It has to be based on a risk assessment. You've got to assess the hazards and perils, that's the hazard vulnerability assessment, as well as you've got to determine your own critical capacities and capabilities for emergencies disasters. You've got to make sure that you're utilizing an all-hazards approach to your emergency management program. And even though it's identified by a number of different names, by a number of different people that are on our call today, your plan needs to be called an emergency operation plan and it needs to be developed to address those risks and perils that are going to affect your facility. CMS is also saying that you're not just to have an emergency operation plan, aka disaster plan or crisis plan. Again, I prefer to say EOP or emergency operation plan, but you've got to develop policies and procedures that are going to be based on that risk analysis and they need to be focused on the facility as well as the entire community. You've got to worry about that railroad crossing a quarter mile away. You've got to worry about the propane depot down the street that might affect you if it exploded. You've got to worry about the school or the hospital that's kitty corner from your facility. You've got to factor in all of these elements in your emergency preparedness and emergency management program. We know that a critical element of the new rule is that you've got to review your program and your plan annually. And here's one that I really need you to focus on. It is now up to you as a provider to identify in your risk analysis what are going to be the specific amounts of subsistence that you will need for your patients, residents, and staff. Meaning, your risk analysis process needs to focus on the realities of your circumstances. And if you determine that because supply lines might be cut down due to a blizzard, that access to delivery could be compromised, that you need 10 days of stuff instead of the traditional three or five days, you've got to determine individually at the individual facility how much stuff, including critical medications, you will need. And surveyors and survey gu surveyor guidance that's out there is going to prompt the surveyor to look at that analysis and hold you to that standard that you are the, you're responsible for developing. 
You've also got to develop policies and procedure that's going to focus on your facility population. You'll need to identify persons that are at risk. You'll need to identify the types of services that need to be provided in every emergency. And that basically equates to the continuity of operations. And with continuity of operations, which CMS is saying you need to have a continuity of operations plan, that plan has to focus on the delegation of authority and succession so that if the real leaders of your facility, the CEO, the administrator, the executive director, the director of nursing, aren't available at the time of an emergency, your plans clearly identify what kind of succession of authority is to be uh, integrated in your facility. The new rule also states that you need to be cooperating and collaborating with the whole community. That means locally, regionally, state, federal, and tribal considerations need to be factored into your planning. CMS is saying that you've got to develop policy and procedure that is going to be able to articulate that you're being involved with the integrated response, that you've developed methods to document your participation in things like healthcare coalitions, local emergency planning groups, or others that you're working with. Surveyors are going to want to see that you're part of that whole community approach and not just an island or a silo amongst yourself. You've got to develop 24-7 contact with all of these other stakeholders in addition to your emergency numbers. And you've got to have alternate modes of communications identified when phone service goes down. CMS is also saying that you've got to identify your needs for sources of energy. And I think it, it is really kind of uh, exemplified with the tragedy that occurred in that long-term care facility in Florida. You've got to have alternates in place to provide energy to keep your residents safe and healthy. You've got to have the ability to provide alternate sources of energy to maintain temperatures for the safe storage of the provisions. You've got to, of course, identify you know, provisions for emergency lighting, fire protection systems. If you're out in a rural area, if your water treatment and sewage treatment is critical to your operation, you might have to put that on emergency backup if it's not currently on a system like that. Here's what the key is. Your risk assessment of your capacities and capabilities might reveal that you need to have additional things hooked up to that generator. Or if your generator is insufficient, you might have to upgrade uh, and, and get a bigger set. Here's a little bit of good news. The first um, publishing of the rule put on some additional considerations when it came to your emergency generators and some additional exercising and runtime that um, CMS finally relented a little bit and basically said the kinds of testing, the type of testing that you're doing with your emergency generator um, in accordance with life safety code requirements uh, is sufficient. Although there are some enhanced on-site storage and refueling considerations that you'll have to um, take into effect. You've got to develop policies and procedures that will help you track your residents, but not only your, your residents, you've got to have a system in place to keep track of your on-duty staff. It's going to be all about accountability. Again, I think about my time on the fire department. We lost track of firefighters at the emergency scene before we came up with accountability systems to keep track of all the moving components. And that's what you need to do when you manage an emergency.
You've got to make sure that you've got protocols and your program is going to deal with safe evacuation, including the care and treatment of your residents and your patients. You've got to focus on staff responsibilities, the transportation, the relocation, and you've got to make sure that your relocation sites are going to be suitable for the kind of resident population that you will be evacuating. Uh, to that lo location site. And you've got to have capabilities to communicate with all external resources. Your policies and procedures need to support your EOP, your emergency operation plan, but they've got to focus on all the details, the recipe that goes into sheltering in place, having additional staff and volunteers, and particularly when it comes to volunteers, there's some expanded requirements so that you're properly vetting those volunteers. When it comes to medical documentation, you've got to make sure that you are not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. You are going to be held to a high standard, the standard that you're already held to, unless there's a declaration by the president of a disaster, and unless 1135 waivers and other protocols go in place. In a disaster, you've got to maintain those records, have them accessible, consider HIPAA and confidentiality, you got to do it all, even when there is a disaster. You've got to develop a communication plan that will be maintained. You've got to require development of an, and maintenance of a, an emergency preparedness communication plan that complies with federal and state law. You've got to make sure that that communication plan will give you the capability of coordinating and communicating with all the stakeholders that are out there. And you see them listed on the screen. Probably one of the biggest changes that's going to affect a lot of providers is more focus on training and testing. You heard me say earlier, it's the drills, the exercises, not necessarily the written plan that's going to get you through a crisis. You've got to make sure that your training program is based on your EOP and your policies and procedures for your emergency preparedness program. You've got to make sure that your training uh, staff and volunteers during initial training, and you've got to make sure that when the survey team comes in and questions your staff beyond race and pass or how to deal with the fire, where are the emergency supplies? Do you have an emergency generator? Your team will need to demonstrate their knowledge on the training and the EOP and the policy and procedure that's out there and that they've received. You've also got to, as most healthcare providers, not everybody, but most of you on the call also need to participate in a community-wide disaster drill on an annual basis. Now, there are some caveats that are out there, especially if you experience a real-world event. There are some exceptions. We don't have time to get into all of this stuff right now, but in a nutshell, if you're a long-term care facility, a hospital, a hospice facility, and several of the other 17 different provider types, you've got to make it your business to reach out to the community, and you've got to participate in that community-wide drill. Additionally, you've got to conduct tabletop exercise. You've got to get involved with the different protocols that your emergency planners, your firefighters, your EMS, your government, and everybody from the White House down to the local um, emergency preparedness or emergency management department in a small county 
does on a regular basis. You've got to train, you've got to conduct drills, and you need to exercise. And again, when it comes to tabletop exercise, this is kind of the, to me anyhow, it's the exciting component of, of your exercise program. This is your opportunity to come up with scenarios, whether it be an active shooter, a flood, or a wildfire. Something where you don't necessarily practice the function of your protocols, but sitting down with your team and intellectually going through the emergency during a tabletop exercise. How does this equate to compliance? Well, there's a whole new tag landscape out there on your horizon. These are known as e-tags. I forgot the exact number, but there's like 40 new e-tags that are aligned with the new rule that you're going to need to become familiar with. Have a plan. It needs to be based on a risk analysis. It needs to be focused on internal capabilities as well as what's happening in the community. These e-tags, unfortunately, are going to be something that providers are going to be familiar with when they receive them. Hopefully, for those of you on the call today, you're going to e embrace the resources that are out there. So let's start to sum this up. The effective date is going to be mid-November of uh, 2017. Uh, well, the effective date was a year ago. The enforcement date or implementation date is going to start 11-16-2017. And what is that expectation? If you are focused on compliance, you don't just have a plan, but you've got a program that will be continually evolving, and it will be part of a comprehensive system of healthcare's response to an emergency. Your program needs to be constantly evolving. It has to be updated frequently and reviewed annually. You're going to need to integrate in robust training, drills, and exercises into your program. And just like my time on the fire department, we only responded to fires 3 to 6% of the time. But when that bell goes off, when the warning is issued, you've got to make sure that your program is ready for immediate implementation. Because what it all boils down to is a word. And that word is culture. You've got to develop a culture of preparedness into your facility that's going to equate to a program that's ready to go in a moment's notice. And what's the ultimate goal of the National Incident Management System, the National Response Framework? It's all about interoperability. When fire, police, EMS show up at your facility or your community uh, in a long-term care environment or whatever you might be, and they start speaking a language that um, you should be familiar with. We want to make sure that you understand what they're saying. And there are some great resources that are available online for you to get better acquaint acquainted with NIMS. You take a test, you go through the program, we go through the program first, then you take a test, you enter in some data, and I'll tell you what, if I was a mock surveyor, like I am, and I was coming into your facility to gauge your levels of preparedness, and I walked into your administrator's office or your maintenance director's office, and I saw that you've gone through this training, and you had the wallpaper up on the wall saying that you've gone through the 100, the 200, the 700, the 800 sessions that are out there online that are free, I'm going to know that you're probably well on your way to developing that culture. And here's one of the things that I think that's most concerning. In accordance with this new rule, there is so much resource that's out there, which leads me to believe as an advocate for healthcare, a trainer, an educator, and a loyal partner with long-term care in particular, why is there so much resource out there? Because I think the consequences of lack of complying is going to be pretty significant. 
everything from Asper Tracy to provide you the technical resources that you're going to need to the resources that CMS is providing, FEMA, the different healthcare associations that are out there. I'll be down in Texas in November working with that healthcare association on these same concepts as a follow-up to the disaster that happened down there to CDC. The resources are out there. There are private companies and vendors that have come up with templates and different kinds of tools like this tool, particularly for long-term care, produced by a company called MedPass that gives you the ability to have an all-hazards, NIMS-compliant emergency operation plan to do the different levels of technology that's out there. There's even an app for that now. In California and Arizona, we've got a disaster app that allows our providers to load all their information on their phone or their tablet so their entire EOP is accessible to them 24-7, even when connectivity goes down. So when that storm is coming, and that's what we deal with here in Arizona, that's called a haboob. When all of a sudden the roof is torn off your facility, you've been impacted operationally because of a cyber terror attack, you've got to clean up the mess, you've got to make sure that you've got companies that are out there ready to help you recover and restore your operation. Because what are your potential risk exposures? Your EOP, aka your disaster plan, needs to be developed in an all-hazards capacity. And it needs to integrate in those NIMS concepts. You've got to make sure that you're utilizing a model like the Incident Command System. CMS doesn't say you've got to use ICS, but it's the gold standard. And you've got to integrate that into your operation so you've got an all-hazards approach. You're reviewing your program and your documents regularly. You're updating them as needed. You're providing the revisions when they're required, and you've got remote access to your plans. What's the expectations of your residents, your patients, your clients, your customers, whatever you happen to call them? They're expecting that you as a healthcare facility is planning, preparing, responding, responding and recovering, and you've got contingencies in place to maintain business continuity or ca continuity of care. We've got to get rid of all those informal agreements that are out there, and you've got to document everything, because here's the bottom line. You as a healthcare facility or as a community can't control what's going to come your way. But you've got to understand, and hopefully I've helped you get a little bit more focus on that, that it can happen to you. Facilities of all types can control your levels of preparedness, response, recovery, and continuity. If you understand why people don't respond, if they're not properly trained, you're going to make a situation where people are going to fail. You've got to make sure that you are developing a culture of preparedness, that you know your hazards and perils. That's done through hazard vulnerability assessment. You've got to make sure that you've got systems of command and control in place. That's all hazards emergency management. You've got a plan to recover, to limit your service disruption. You've got to know the regs. It is about compliance, but it there's consequences for not complying with those rules. And if you've got robust disaster management protocols in place, the bottom line is you're going to reduce your risk exposure. Well, Dr. Brooks, it was a pleasure to present, and I'm going to turn it back to you. Well, thank you, Stan. That was a just incredible presentation. And uh, we do have a few questions. Uh, <clears throat> so CMS is implementing, what type of facilities and providers uh, do does the CMS rule apply to 
and should providers that are not required to comply to these rules, should they use these as best practices for their compliance? Well, I don't. I wish I did, but I don't have all 17 provider types memorized. But if you go on the CMS website, if you search out the survey and certification letters that came out and other resources that are out there, and I can provide you with some information, Dr. Brooks, if you want to share that with the participants at a later date. But um, there's 17 different pr provider types, certainly hospitals, long-term care facilities, hospitals, federally funded community health centers, ambulatory care facilities, dialysis centers. Anybody uh, of those provider types that are receiving CMS funding have to comply with this rule in various capacities, especially for the smaller types of, of, of uh, operations like even home health care, you don't have to do some of the things that the larger bricks and mortar facilities have to do, um, but there's a whole list of the 17 that are out there. And when it comes to best practices, you know, everything that we're talking about has been, uh, it should be considered a best practice, even if you're an assisted living facility or retirement campus or any kind of provider that doesn't get CMS funding, you know, almost verbatim, everything that I talked about today should and could be considered a best practice. Okay, why is a hazard vulnerability assessment such an important part of developing the comprehensive emergency operations plan? You know, without knowing what your threats, perils, capacities, and capabilities are, you're kind of developing a plan somewhat arbitrarily off of your best guesses. You know, again, and like I said earlier, in the desert, you know, we really have a tendency of focusing on heat but our number one peril is actually flooding. And in the Midwest, where it might all be about storms, you've got to take that all-hazards approach and consider that nuclear power plant 30 miles away. You've got to consider that river that might be rising in the spring four or five miles away that at first glance might not impact you, but ultimately could. I remember being in Colorado Springs a few years ago, a good distance away from the mountains um, that had that serious wildfire. Uh, just a few years ago in the Colorado Springs area. And I remember walking around with the maintenance director saying, so what's our plan for a wildfire? And the guy said to me, listen, pal, we haven't had a fire here in 50 years. We don't really have to worry about it. I know that that mountain over there where NORAD is housed looks awful close, but it is far away. Wouldn't you know that very next year, that's when that fire swept through Manitou Springs, Colorado Springs, and that fire marched right towards the facility. So you need to know the hazards internally and externally in the community. Where do you see is the greatest opportunity for improvement in emergency preparedness? You know, in the big picture, I think in spite of the OIG report, healthcare providers are doing a pretty good job at being prepared, responding. But when it comes to recovery, what do we do? When the battalion chief from the fire department says that fire caused some significant damage, nobody's going back in the facility. Or those flood waters rise and you've got to go and evacuate and you can't get back to the facility for two months. It's on that backside of emergency management, recovery and continuity of operations. Facilities and providers need to focus more on the recovery capabilities. How do we get back into business and how do we maintain our continuity of care and services? And that's why I'm kind of pleased and I hope somebody doesn't throw an eraser at me. But um, the new regulations really put a lot on the provider's plates, especially when it comes to continuity of operation planning and recovery. But in my 
world, that's a good thing because providers don't realize how vulnerable they are until they experience this kind of impact. And knowing this in advance, knowing that they've got a plan to recover is going to be worth its price and so. Okay, and last question. Uh, how can an effective training program help uh, the staff overcome barriers to responding effectively during an unexpected emergency? You know, I didn't get to talk about it a whole lot today, but when I do a full program, I talk about barriers to response. And whereas most people think that when someone is faced with an adverse event, smoke is coming out of a patient room, a boiler's exploded in the bowels of the hospital, whatever the circumstances might be, most people think that folks will panic when there's an emergency. There are barriers to response. People will go into a state of denial, they will freeze, and having a robust training program to help people overcome that element of um, failing to respond. They don't, we don't want them to freeze. We want them to be cultured and conditioned to respond. You know, we never knew what was going to be happening on the opposite end of that 911 call when we first got dispatched. It might be some burnt popcorn in the microwave. It could be a fully involved building where we've got residents trapped. You've got to be ready for anything, and your training, drills, and exercises will help you overcome those barriers. Well, thank you so much, Stan. Again, just an incredible presentation. Um, please use his contact information on the screen for any questions. Uh, if you send us questions, we will forward them on. Uh, you can register for uh, future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at 1sthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you again and have a great day.